0: to 1M1, the movie music podcast, episode one. I'm Alex Steiermark. I'm the host and creator of the show. Our inaugural episode is with Nicholas Bertel, who's nominated this year for an Academy Award for his score for Moonlight. It's a real honor and thrill for me personally to have Nick as our guest. As you'll hear in the show, Nick and I first met when he was in a course that I teach at Columbia University. It's called the ASCAP Columbia Film Scoring Workshop. That was just five short years ago. It's been amazing to get to see how quickly Nick's career has taken off. His enthusiasm for what he does is tremendously inspiring. We recorded this conversation just a few days before the Oscar nominations were announced. I'm really excited to be sharing this with you. I think you'll enjoy it. So I have to I have to level with you. This is actually the inaugural recording. I am so honored to be here. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> it's just been so thrilling to watch your career. You're still very young. Yeah. Well, and young, yeah. Um, you keep going from one great project to the next. and Well, thank they, you.
1: They're all of phenomenal quality. Thank you. Well, you know, when we first uh, got a chance to meet and, and I studied with you, really, you know, I mean, this was, uh, I, I think so much, I, I know I've said this to you before, but so much of, of what I do even on a day-to-day basis I still think about a lot of the stuff that we talked about um, you know in in class with you Um, uh, there are so many things I think just with the process and the approach of thinking about film music that I really first learned about from you so you know that's that's 100 percent the case well
0: well I'm I'm, I appreciate that I'm glad I mean it still takes a special special talent and you've got an amazing work ethic Thank you. And uh, on top of that, you're a really nice guy,
1: <laughs> which
0: which uh, also probably helps has helped you along the way because uh, you just seem unflappable. Um, you just seem well, like a real problem solver.
1: Well, I, you know, it, it's interesting, actually. I think every film, the way that I try to think about it is like every film is this sort of new set of challenges. And so um, a lot of it is about... Uh, the excitement of those new challenges. You know, you, you know, a film about a certain world, and thinking about what's the right music for it. Uh, you know, what what feels right. Uh, working with the team, the creative team, and figuring that out. Um, and then when you work on a different film, it's a completely different set of variables. You know, different people, different uh, a whole different cinematic world. Um, so I think a lot of it is the, you know, staying excited about those new. Sets of challenges on each on each film. That's what gets me excited. You know, I think if it was something where I felt each film was going to be, oh, let's do that again. I, I don't think it would be interesting at all. You know. Yeah. Well, that
0: I mean, that's 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 great. I mean, and and if you look at, I mean, if you look at your projects that you've done, Twelve Years a Slave, Free State of Jones, The Big Short last year, and this year, of course, Moonlight, which is getting incredible. Attention and accolades and Thank all you. of all of it, well deserved. It's just beautiful, okay. beautiful film and beautiful music. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me is that in each one of those films, you've really done something completely different. You've tried, you've created a different palette. You've it's. Uh, I, I imagine the research that you put into it is is different. And I get the totally. sense from listening to your work that you. That research is maybe a big part of it and that you yeah. really enjoy that part of it
1: absolutely i mean i spend a lot of time thinking about uh what i'm gonna do before i do it and and again the big thing that i've found over and over is uh it's it's kind of like you do all this work you think about something very deeply you do a lot of research um but as soon as you start actually working up against the picture all of that may go out the window entirely, you know? Uh, and that's the thing that I think is always newly amazing in some way is that you really just don't know until you start. There's this alchemy of putting music against picture that I don't think anyone will ever truly understand, which is what's awesome about it in some ways. You know, it's it really is this uh, sense of discovery each time. But that being said, I think the early stages of research of um, the thought process that goes into it, early conversations with uh, with the directors, with producers, uh, the screenplay. I think um, getting involved early has been helpful. Um, often, uh, you know, I've I've worked on some films where I've come in really, you know, at, at the end. Um, but uh, with Moonlight, for example, uh, you know, I read the script first, um, and I think there is something about those first. Moments when you have a real emotional connection with a project right away from the from the writing, um, and as I'm reading a screenplay for the first time, you know I'm taking notes on everything. I'm sort of like writing down any ideas that I'm having, almost like stream of consciousness. You know, there's this kind of like just what comes to you, um, and and I think similar to the first time that I've gotten uh, an early cut of a film. Uh, there's what I like to do is is just take the film and um, bring it into my system and just start trying different instrument sounds out and different colors and you know I'll play different types of things against it. Um, and it's almost like uh, you know you start choosing a color palette, you start seeing just what feels like it might, somehow connect and and it doesn't have to be something intellectually that connects which i think is what's so fascinating about it it doesn't have to be something that makes sense it could be something actually sometimes the stuff that works i think is the stuff that you know on paper wouldn't make sense at all but emotionally against the picture feels right somehow um and i think that's the the beautiful stuff where you get this feeling um, of of discovery from it, where something didn't make any sense at all. you know, I've had times where i'll I'll write something that I didn't think would work. you know, I was just following some idea and then you'll put it up against picture. and not only does it work, but it even perfectly fits the length of a scene somehow and lines, you know that's those are the things where uh, I've joked with with people, you know, it's almost like there's this like, mystical thing well, I think that's interesting I
0: mean one of the things that I've noticed is that um, directors have their own rhythms yes and you feel that internally within the scene you know totally the way that people speak the you know the rhythm the, the pace the way it's cut mm-hmm. um, I think that somehow that begins to infuse the kinds of kind of music that absolutely. gets written
1: absolutely and I, I think rhythm is a big part of it um, I think that yeah, you're absolutely right. The directors like there, they, there's a there's a a rhythm that they naturally give a film, just their worldview and their their process. Um, and then w- what's what's really amazing is to see also how the director and the editor bring a rhythm because the edit editing is so rhythmic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the um, you know something that I that I I think about a lot actually is the way in which rhythm works over the course of a whole film, because I think that's something that oftentimes we don't, you know, we don't even realize how those things add up cumulatively over over an hour and a half to two hours, where, you know, an editor will give a rhythm that isn't just moment to moment, it's actually this very large scale macro kind of a rhythm of the way that the whole thing unfolds, and I think that's true with the film score as well, where one of the biggest differences between writing a piece of music and writing a film score, I think, is this the macro sense of it where this it's like more more like architecture, maybe in some ways than anything else, where it's this big picture thing where there's this like mapping of different ideas. And it's how all the pieces fit together. It's not just about the pieces themselves. Um, well, yeah. and
0: also, I mean, the the music itself has to have its own narrative arc. Exactly.
1: Exactly. There has to be. And and what's cool, I think, is that there's this moment, at least that I've found on projects where you're, you know, up until a certain point, you're trying to find ideas for specific places, um, and then there's this sort of you know, it's almost to use the metaphor. there's like the tipping point where all of a sudden the ideas that you've had all start to tie together. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle where all of a like, it's almost like two thirds of the way through the process, maybe 70% of the way through the process. All of a sudden that last 30%, all the ideas just start making sense. Mm-hmm. And that, that last 30% just happens very, very quickly. It's like, you know, if you've gotten that far that the other stuff was coherent, then it's like well what were we gonna do in this moment all of a sudden you're like oh actually this theme makes sense because of this element of the story or because of this music element along those lines let, yeah. let's just talk
0: about moonlight specifically sure. For, sure. for a moment yeah how did you get involved with the moonlight what was the process by which you became the composer and you, you said you read the script, for example, yes. with Moonlight. Did, had the film already been shot and cut?
1: No. Um, so on Moonlight, I was in the midst of scoring the big short, actually, and uh, one of the producers of the big short, Jeremy Kleiner, uh, who was co-president of Plan B Entertainment, he he and I were having dinner, um, and he brought up a screenplay that he had read, and he was so profoundly moved by it um, that and he he basically said that it was he had read one of the most beautiful things in his whole life he'd ever seen, uh, and he said it was a screenplay called Moonlight, and you know he said would you like to read it? <laughs> so, you know, I was like obviously of course I'd love to, and I read it and I felt the same way uh, immediately. I just thought it was this incredible work of of art of poetry, and uh, I said to him you know if, if I'd love to meet Barry. I had seen Medicine for Melancholy, uh, Barry's first film, um, uh, and, you know, I was a fan of his, but I I, I just said, look, I'd love to, to, to grab a coffee with him, and we ended up getting coffee uh, in downtown LA about a year and a half ago, and coffee turned into a couple glasses of wine. We ended up talking about, you know, we had this amazing sort of two-hour conversation about music and films and life, and um, we, I think we just sort of left it that we would just continue the conversation we just see where it goes and unsolicited i sent him a playlist of just music that i was inspired by music that i thought could show kind of the range of possible sounds that you know that that moonlight could have it wasn't even you know wasn't nothing specific really it was uh everything from like mozart to the isley brothers you know and um Barry immediately reached out and was was excited, I think, about it, and um, it, it, we just sort of took it from there. You know, um, I think the one of the the things I was feeling early on was just that there was this very wide range of possible musical uh, ideas and landscape for Moonlight, uh, and I and what was awesome was that was totally the way that Barry was thinking about it as well, um, and. Uh, what what happened next was actually this was you know this was before the shoot um but we had this discussion about chopped and screwed music uh which barry is incredibly passionate about it's a style of southern hip-hop where you take tracks and you slow them down and when you slow them down the pitch goes down and you get this very enriched and deepened musical texture um and again in some of the ways that i was talking about just the not knowing what's going to happen with a process. With chopping and screwing, you really don't know what, what something's going to sound like until you do it. And what's, what's fascinating is that the, the musical textures and sonic palette that come out of these you know, chop and screw tracks is incredible you know, uh, instruments just sound totally different. Lyrics get stretched out. Uh, all these new harmonics in the instruments sort of, it, it's almost like you're peering inside the music and so you're like stretching it out and seeing what's in there. And um, we were talking about this and I don't exactly, you know, we, we've joked about, you know, how did this exactly come up? But basically we, we, we said, you know, what if we chopped and screwed the score? Like, what would that be like? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Barry said, is that even possible? And I was just like, yeah, totally, let's do it. Um, I was in a hip hop band, in fact, in college. Uh, my background is I'm a you know a classical pianist. Growing up, uh, went to Juilliard for the pre college division, um, but at Harvard in college, I actually w- was in a hip hop band and wrote a lot of hip hop music. And I still you know for years and years produced a lot of hip hop beats and love hip hop. And so for you know 15 years, I've been playing around with audio engineering and production technology and when Barry talked about chopping and screwing the music, I I sort of immediately knew what I could do, just technically. Um, So we didn't, you know, again, we didn't know if it would work. I think that was the big thing. You know, you sort of, it seemed like a cool idea, and I think we both got very excited about it, but until you put stuff against picture, you have no idea if it's gonna work. And um, along the way, what what happened was I wrote a piece, uh, some pieces of music inspired by the screenplay and inspired by the very early cut that I saw of the film. And I was trying to channel this idea of poetry that I felt from the screenplay. Um, I was sort of imagining what would be the musical analog of that feeling of poetry, that feeling of sort of um, sensitivity, of intimacy in the film, of quiet. Um, And I wrote a piece of music, and I called it Piano and Violin Poem. Uh, really trying to channel (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I sent it to him I said here's piano and violin poem and uh, that actually became Little's theme in Mm -hmm. the film Mm -hmm. that you know so it it was that that was one example where this early idea did work you know there were lots that didn't work but that worked (laughs) you know it's
0: interesting that you say that this is sort of like I I always feel like in films where you have multiple generations of of a character yeah um And typically, it's a biopic, or often it's a biopic, and it's always the person who played the adult who gets nominated. Mm. But I always feel like it's the person who played the child who really hooks the audience in.
1: That gets you in there. And gets
0: you in there. And and it's interesting that, in a a sense, the same thing was happening with your musical idea. Absolutely.
1: That was how I started thinking about it. I was thinking about Chapter 1, and I was thinking about Little. I was thinking about him as a boy. And... I think on a uh, like a more of a technical musical level, one of the things I was I was thinking about for the music was how could the music get inside his point of view? because little doesn't really he, he say much. He's very quiet and he's quiet throughout his life. he's He's a man of few words, you know. Um, but in particular, I was thinking about him as a boy, and um, the piece, little's theme that I wrote, I think to me, you know, because because as a composer, I can only sort of go on my own feelings and and how things are affecting me. And I think that piece of music felt introspective to me in a way. Um, like when I hear it, when I you know feel that, um, it triggers a like a like sort of a thoughtfulness, um, almost like a meditative kind of a a feeling. Um, and I think that's that's what I, you know I was. Feeling that for little, like he, you know, his point of view. He has so many feelings, and there's so much in, going on in his mind and in his heart. Um, and I wanted the music to imply that, you know, that there's so much here, um, and you know, he's not necessarily saying everything that he's feeling. interesting discoveries that Barry and I made was that the chopping and screwing aesthetic technique gave us a way of of transforming Little's theme while still allowing it to to musically you know stay keep its character so we actually took Little's theme and at different points in the film we would bend it and slow it and pitch it in different ways Um, I would also orchestrate it differently with different instruments Um, but as you know as Little grows up as he as he grows up and in chapter two you know you know he's Chiron you know which is his given name Um, and in chapter three he's known as Black Um, in each chapter the music the theme changes but is still recognizably mm-hmm. Little's theme. So mm-hmm. in chapter two, we, it's it's lower and deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it actually takes on its most extreme transformation in the Schoolyard fight where um, I actually took Little's theme and slowed it so far down that it's over, it's like two to three octaves down. And I took a, a, two versions of that and layered them on top of each other. And then I ran those through this like vinyl filter. and you, you know, when I listen to it, I, you almost don't even recognize what it is at first. It's this rumbling thing. No, I mean, yeah.
0: at, at, at point, I mean, it's, they're not rec- necessarily recognizable right. musical instruments. Exactly. Did exactly. you record acoustic instruments first or were these uh, like samples
1: that you did this to? or So what was interesting with this, and, I, and this was something that I came to because of, uh, you know, from experience from other projects, As time goes on, I feel it's more and more important earlier in the process to record with real instruments, um, if possible. You know, if you're recording for an orchestra, you can't you can't do that early. (laughs) But um, with something like Little's Theme, I recorded it for piano and for violin. Uh, My my dear friend Tim Fain is the incredible violinist who worked with. I have he we worked on uh, Twelve Years a Slave together. He he is actually the violin sound that Chiwetel is playing through right it. because you um, wrote all
0: the all that you were the one that was responsible for all that music that's played on camera, camera and, yes and um the vocal arrangements as well yes, right
1: exactly so I wrote and researched and arranged all of the on-camera amazing it, it really
0: I mean it's so obviously it's so essential to what the story is
1: well that was an unforgettable project yeah. you know uh for me um I was just so honored to be a part of that project, um, but uh, but Tim, you know, his sound is very particular. I think the sound that he generates from the violin. I I often joke it it it, it sounds it almost sounds like a viola. Like he said, it sounds richer in in texture. Like his sa- his notes the sound thicker, <laughs> you know. They than sound normal. thicker, yeah. and
0: also I I notice you like you really like the sound I of do. the bow on the strings. So.
1: I think sound is so important in the you know it's. Really, a huge element of what I spend time thinking about is the sounds. Uh, you know, I think um, the notes are one thing, but the performances and the sounds are so essential. And in Moonlight, for example, when it, you know, if you listen closely, you can hear breathing often. You can hear Tim taking a breath, or you know, you can hear musicians actually, you can hear the, the bow hair. Um, and with Tim, I actually recorded it very close to the mic. Um, We worked a lot at taking those sounds, so real, you know, violin recordings, and then I would start doing some production to them, so I would run them through interesting combinations of reverbs, Um, and so, like, to your question, um, Little's Theme, I did record, basically, fully, and when I played it for Barry, it was... The same version that's in the movie, you know. The, so my demo was the final version, um, because I think for things like that, hearing a real violin and hearing the um, a real performance, uh, I think it, you know, for all of us, I think that has an immediate uh, response. You know, it it feels different. Um, but but yeah. what,
0: what I what I do admire greatly about your work is that there's a there's an approach to film composing that um you especially see with first-time composers maybe especially ones that aren't classically trained or or you know fully f- uh, fluent in the technology and everything that's used for mm-hmm. today for writing film scores that they would play along to the picture let's say on a guitar uh-huh. and there's a lot of great scores I've worked sure. on some like this oh, absolutely. and then and then and they're sort of playing along. Like you feel mm. they're playing along. And you always, mm. me personally, I always wish there was one more take mm. where it wasn't like I felt the following in the process. Right. And all, all film composers at some point have to, they put, you know, they put ideas up the picture and they sort of play along in some way. But but with you, it you know, it's interesting that you're on a, also on the big short performing on the piano yeah. and uh, Tim is playing violin and it seems as though it's not just it's like it's very deliberate it's very thought out it's not it's not you're not like riffing you're actually right which which i think is great
1: well we you know i think it's 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 interesting because i've thought about this a lot too there's something about um at least when i write for a specific sequence um i think i do often think about the cues as pieces you know where um there are certainly cues where There is an improvisational nature, absolutely, and some cues benefit from that. You know, where it feels free flow or Mm -hmm. it feels like it's it's riffing in that way. But I think um, oftentimes for me, um, I just find there's something. Maybe it goes back to that same (laughs) metaphor of discovery, but like I think there's something about when you write something that's a piece, um, and you then see how it fits. Uh, Things. it it uncovers things to you that if you tried to map everything out those discoveries wouldn't happen almost by definition you know like like when you you know i'll have a musical idea and then i will sort of take it you know it'll start generated by the film and then i'll take it and i'll see sort of where the music might take me so then i'll work on it as a piece of music and then i'll go back and put it against picture and see where that that then takes me, you know? Um, so there's definitely stuff that happens away from the picture, and I think it's that sort of back and forth in a way that is interesting for me to see, you know, because there, there are so many times where when, when you do that process, um, it it changes your own perception of the scene where you see the scene differently, you know? All of a sudden you notice something you didn't notice, or something lines up in a way, or, you, or actually I've even had the experience where You'll put a different piece of music somewhere, and you notice a piece of dialogue that you didn't even hear before. It's weird, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the way that your brain sort of responds to stuff. Um, so, so I think absolutely with like Little's theme, it was it was written as a piece, um, and uh, and I didn't necessarily know where it would go in the movie. Um, I think uh, I imagined it for Little. Um, for, the, for, for his character, um, and then, then you know, you sort of put it against picture and you see, oh, it, you know, it feels good in the car. You know, it feels good when they're riding in the car. Um, and then Barry and I were, were doing these experiments. I would send him chopped and screwed versions of cues, <laughs> and uh, one of the really excre- extreme ones was uh, the one that went in the schoolyard. And so much of this, and this is, you know, connected with the Big Short and the way that I've come to this this view at all. But um, so much of this was working so closely with Barry. You know, I mean, well, I think I that's mean, a big piece of this. I
0: think you know, it's pr- it just it's proof that time is your ally. You know, it's yeah. like, it not, you, of course, when you're working on a movie, you don't often get as much time as you'd like sure. to do things. But in in, in both cases, well, yeah. certainly with with um, Moonlight. You know, I think it's significant that you read it when it was in script form. You yeah. were already having conversations with Barry. I think it's, uh, to be honest, I think it's bold that Barry committed before he even shot the film, because sometimes you know you don't know what the palette of the movie is, and and I think it's a testament to your abilities that that you could work with with whatever it was going to be. You know, and I, I and and also I think it's interesting that clearly was beneficial that you were able to have conversations throughout the process
1: 100 percent. i think so i mean working with barry was very inspirational musically for me you know certainly i mean creatively artistically um we had so much fun on the project actually that was and 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 this is where it's linked to the big short not only did i meet barry while i was working on the big short but the experience i had on the big short taught me so much about the way that i wanted to approach film scoring going forward, actually. Uh, when I was working on The Big Short, and this just sort of happened, it wasn't planned, but um, I live in New York and I would go out to Los Angeles uh, to work on Big Short with Adam McKay and Hank Corwin, our incredible editor. And uh, I would fly out and uh, I, was, I was given an office uh, in Technicolor, which is on the Paramount lot, and it was right next to the editing room where Hank and Adam were working. And we found that, you know, I brought some of my gear and I brought my computer and a keyboard and everything, and we just found that on a sort of daily basis, you know, I would walk into their room or Hank would come in and he'd say, hey, I'm working on this thing, you wanna come take a look? And I'd go in and take a look, and then Hank would come by and he'd say, hey, you know, this sounds pretty cool, why don't we try and all of a sudden, this just like workshop developed where we were the f- making the movie together uh, as it was being edited, trying things out. And Hank, Hank's joked about it that it was it was like we were doing jazz, we were playing jazz, you know, uh, just moment to moment. And I think it was not only was it fun, but there were a thousand discoveries that we made. That would never have happened if we weren't in the same room. You know, the type of thing where Hank would just say, "Yeah, I'm trying to figure something out on this scene," and I would say, "Oh, you know, let's just put this up there and see what happens." You know, I just wrote this thing. You wanna? And you know, it you know, like nine times out of ten, it'd be something interesting, which which you know is never the, it never works that way. You know, or had never worked that way for me, where we just got into this zone where we were riffing on stuff together while the movie was being cut and uh af- you know we've all said since then that that not only was that an amazing experience but we all just as much as possible want to work like that in the future you know
0: it's um it's uh well it's kind of a luxury but it's almost um Obvious. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, um, you know, the, the, the program that I teach at Columbia, yes. w- w- I, it's third year graduate film directing students, emerging composers. Everyone's very early in their careers. Yeah. And at a certain point, uh, oftentimes one of the filmmakers will say to me, well, I don't know. It's not working with the composer. I, I emailed them all my notes. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, email? <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? Email? You need to go and it, you need to sit in the same room.
1: 100%. Hundred percent. People know.
0: I mean, it's so tempting now to, especially, people can live anywhere they want. Yes. They have their most people have amazing home studios now. A lot of filmmakers edit at home. Totally. It's uh, it's entirely possible for everyone to be in their little isolated spaces and send things back and forth via email. But really, there's nothing that beats face to face working it out.
1: I think it's for me now. I think it's essential. You know, I actually. I also think not following this process is very (laughs) paranoia-inducing, because there's so much to be said for being in the same room and knowing that you're hearing the same things. Um, When you're having a conversation together, listening to things, you can immediately, you know, there might be one thing that's bothering a director, you know, there might be some, maybe the tempo is too fast, or maybe there's one instrument that's annoying somehow, and if you're just there in the same place, you can say, "Well, what if we just, you know, maybe I'll mute that, or, or how about what's not feeling right? You know, let's try something else here." And immediately you can do that, and I think that 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 that's on sort of like avoiding uh, avoiding problems, but on the plus side, just on a constructive side, you can say, "Hey, we there's no music over here right now. Why don't we just try a couple?" of these pieces ever like what about that you know or or you know immediately you can then say well how did that feel maybe we need something the opposite of that and i think if you're not in the room those conversations might never even take place over email They, they probably wouldn't take place you know
0: it does it does speak to your openness as a as a creative collaborator though that you're willing to expose yourself and be in that process because i think um some composers are very protective of their writing process and they want to be
1: left alone. um. It's interesting. I've found that, I mean, there's definitely times for me where I want to be, you know, where I feel I need to be by myself. You know, I think, especially at the beginning of a lot of ideas, um, you need space to, to try things out for yourself. Um, And I generally would say that I write, I write a lot of things by myself and then decide which worlds of those types of ideas i want to bring to a project or you know so like i'll have a sonic palette that i'll think is right i'll write some pieces that feel right you know and i'll i'll choose those for myself early on um and i think once you start doing that i try to take the mindset that um when you find things that don't work you know, I try to view that as as a helpful discovery, you know, because I do feel you have to have this sort of faith that you're gonna find stuff you're something's gonna work <laughs> you know and early on you need <laughs> yeah. to,
0: you need to initiate that dialogue yes. with the director you exactly they, so, you can't be afraid of that because it's so easy to it's it's easy to talk about music, but that's very different from hearing music. Exactly. And so it's important to start sending idea, musical ideas. Right. Hundred
1: percent. And and as and and early on, then really um, feeling when things work, why do they work? And when things don't work, why don't they work? You know, um, for example, if something isn't feeling right, it it could be so many different things. But maybe early on, you actually start realizing that you know what, like higher textures or 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 frequencies maybe there's a lot of dialogue in a movie and maybe if you're writing things you know maybe you decide there's not going to be any violins in this movie because they get in the way of a lot of the dialogue you know maybe it's just going to be low strings or it's going to be a different texture and you know thinking about even something subtle like that thinking about what's the nature of the movie on the big short there's lots of dialogue there's a lot of talking there's complicated ideas you know extremely sophisticated financial concepts um which which was really part of the point of the big short you know and so throughout for example i was spending a lot of time every cue i would write i would try to figure out ways of making sure that it wasn't adding you know it wasn't confusing the ideas you know i never wanted the dialogue the the music to get in the way and actually there are some scenes where you know i the the music i had was was totally wrong and and we had to change it you know like um i remember i had a a cue um that i tried out for the uh the margot robbie in the bathtub you know (laughs) and i had this this hip-hop track that i put there uh which had like this harp doing something and it was just this very sort of like harp glissando all of us and when you were watching the scene you just had no idea what was going on cuz this music was just like totally mm-hmm. getting in the way and so you know i ended up putting a hip hop track there that was really sparse
0: yeah it's almost like an acid jazz thing it has something. a
1: yeah it's like this very low key vibe exactly right. you know it just feels kind of like it's just this sound but and um but that was a perfect example where you know i remember we actually uh watched that with an audience you know while we were working on it uh late in the in the Stage of stages of, of putting it together, and uh, and that was one one big note that came back was Margo Robin bat. The music's definitely wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so it, it, I think those those are just interesting things you find, you know, where where there there is some solution to those things. Yeah,
0: it's interesting in the Big Short, since we're talking about the Big Short, that uh, it seems to me it seemed different from Moonlight in the sense that there were so many different types of music like genres of music that you were doing yes yes and uh, how did that come about and first of all when did were you brought in uh early also on that film or
1: so interestingly um plan b produced that and mm-hmm. i had first met jeremy kleiner years before um and it was after our collaboration on 12 years a slave that um i think it was about it was a couple years later that um i was talking to jeremy and he uh he mentioned the big short to me and he said you know i think it'd be interesting for you to chat with adam mckay about this you know um and i forget exactly what happened i think we just had a phone call adam and i had a phone call and i had read the script this was early on and um we we had this phone call and i i i sent him some musical ideas, actually, just like I sent him this sort of email of ideas of of possible things to think about for the film. And I happened to attach a couple pieces of my music, just things I'd written over the years, you know, um, almost as an aside. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Adam actually really dug the music that I attached to the email. Um, and he wanted to chat more about it. And we had an early conversation where And it was so interesting too because Adam had such an instinct for the type of music that might work in the movie. And he said to me, he was really curious what might be the sound of mathematics. That was something he was thinking about. Like, what's the sound of math? And in particular, what's the sound of dark math? That was his. (laughs) That was his question. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I sort of uh, you know got off the call and I started playing around with some ideas and i had this idea of creating something that felt like there was like stability but also instability like and i had this idea of what if you had like all these pianos kind of playing at once with this really grainy kind of sound and they're just sort of this like complexity but it all kind of is ordered you know it was it felt like that might be an interesting metaphor for financial markets and um I wrote the track and uh sent it to adam and he and he dug it and that actually that piece this is you know th- these are examples that that work there are so many examples <laughs> that, that don't work but these these did happen to work so that cue is um that's actually the piece that plays uh in the big short when uh all all the people are leaving uh the casino in mm-hmm. vegas at the end when they're walking out to the cars mm-hmm. um it just sort of plays um and uh that was that became uh the cues called redemption at the roulette table uh but we we called it while we were working on the movie we called it the tessellation cuz it sounded like these like tessellating patterns that were sort of you know uh, working together and morphing on top of each other and um that was kind of a, a thematic idea that represented dark math and the the complexity of the system gone wrong. a lot about what people are looking for on these projects just from that first conversation you can get a sense of um, what what they're feeling emotionally what they're looking for I think that's something that I I try to explore a lot is the emotional landscape that a director is is searching for in a film because musically it's hard like you know it's hard to talk about musical terms and actually I think uh, you know you can sort like you were saying. I mean, you can have all these musical conversations, but until you actually play a piece of music, you don't know if something works or not. But I think you can actually have a lot of really helpful emotional conversations that get to the point pretty quickly. You know, there if there's a scene where, uh, you know, you can say, is this scene supposed to feel, you know, happy? Is this scene supposed to, supposed to feel sad? Are we are we do we not want the do we want the music to say something that the movie isn't saying, or do we want the, mu- the movie, the music to say something that that it is saying, but enhance it, you know? And I think just those, just that kind of grid right there, you can almost you can start answering a lot of questions.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important for a director, and most good directors do this when they're talking to composers. Is in, in a way they're talking to you like they talk to an actor. Yeah. You know, talking about what the scene's about. And, totally. And, and you know, and I think um, those conversations are infinitely more helpful than trying to talk music, exactly. you know, specifically.
1: Exactly. Like the key of e flat, you know, yeah. in Allegro, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to get anybody anywhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You yeah. know, but saying, oh, actually, I think this scene needs to feel more somber and or, um, you know, it seems like this character is going in one direction, but actually we maybe want to imply something else. Um, I think those are the really fun moments you know the the, musically the most fun moments are definitely where you can say something that isn't in on the picture I I remember in my first meeting with Barry I said to him you know if if we if we do this you know I'd love I'd really love you to come to New York uh, as much as possible that's you know and I that's something that I'm finding more is more and more helpful and to Barry's credit he was so into that and would come to New York a lot um, and we would spend days on end here in the studio just um, exploring things together, trying things out, um, lo- you know, looking at the picture together and, and seeing what musical ideas felt right, uh, spotting the movie together where you know, we'll look at certain places and say, hey, should there be a cue here? Um, or maybe there was a queue and then we decide actually it should be quiet. Um, that's always fascinating to me where you'll – you'll write a piece of music for a scene and it works so well and then you'll watch the movie and it totally doesn't work you know it's this it's like the micro works but the macro fails Mm -hmm. and that's something that i i think is is sort of almost like impossible to know you just have to you know watch the movie and and see how things feel and be Kind of open to that um but but that would that's the type of stuff that barry and i would do where we would really look at scenes and say you know should we do something here and barry had amazing you know insights into different places in the movie where he just knew in a lot of places that you know what no me i don't want music here you know he would say you know i would say hey should we try something he would say nope i'm good with that we're you know i don't want music there and he was totally right every moment he he had an instinct for it that he just felt And I think, for me, so much of the process is, is, you know, I'm just there to help the directors, you know, uh, execute the vision that they want for the movie. You know, I I, like if I can somehow bring music that feels like that's the music they they imagine for the film. Mm. That's the goal. You know, it's not like for me, it's not for me to have my music there as this concept in the film. Like I want the music to feel for the director, like it's their, their music, you know, like it was um, part of the movie somehow. So, so that's why, you know, his instincts, like that's that's exactly right, you know? Well,
0: the, the film has so much restraint and which gives it its dignity, you know, and your performance actually of the music is very empathetic. It's just really sensitive, which I think is beautiful. Yeah. And um, from the very first note that you hear, it, it there's such intentionality. It's it, and, and well, thank you. it tells the audience that they're in good hands with this movie.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. I that means so much to me. I mean, I I, uh, I think that for Barry and for me, we proceeded totally from our emotional responses to things. You know, um, and I think early on from those first moments where Barry said, you know, that piano violin poem, it works. This is right. You know, keep going with this. Um, as soon as that felt right, we we had a, 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 a road to follow in a way, and we would follow things, and there were many other different musical paths, too. You know, there was Little's theme that evolves, but there were certain cues that were very different, you know, like the uh, music in the swimming sequence, the piece uh, called The Middle of the World that I wrote, um, which is almost like a violin concerto. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally different texture uh, from the Little's theme. And that was an example where Barry wanted me to, you know, he would say, go for it, you know, like I, he wanted that music to soar there. Um, but again, you know, I think that was what was exciting was working with someone where he encouraged me so much and he was so open to trying things like the range of musical possibilities that he was open to was so wide. Um, there wasn't one moment in the whole process where I said, you know, I have this, I have this idea. And he would just say, show me, you know, let's take a look at it. There was never a moment of like, oh, actually I think I know what, you know, he was always open to it. But you know, there were lots of things that that didn't work they were trying you know i remember um i wrote uh i wrote a piece of music actually for the beach for when when kevin and chiron first uh you know hook up and uh it it that was a moment where it totally worked on a micro level and when you watch the whole movie it did not work at all um and you know we saw it and we just said wow you know my first response was there should not be music there you know and what ended up working there in fact was um an idea from another part of the film there's a piece that uh i'd written which is a melody that i associated with kevin's character um which is this uh which is the melody on the piano that you hear at the very end of the movie it's really the last thing you hear when kevin and black are are, um you know uh, at home together and uh once we decided to have no music on the beach it still felt like there could be music there but but not on the beach scene right after it in the ride you know when they're in the car um and sort of summer almost like a summary to that scene and because they get there together at the end not to give anything away really, but but because they're together at the end um you know I said what if we took that cue and actually I took that that piano melody and we did it right at the end of the beach sequence and and it just worked you know it felt that's one of those moments where things start tying together like this interesting geographical map where because it worked for them at the end of the film in a way it symbolically does connect to them at the other moment when they're really together and, and that so it's interesting that that feeling of musical togetherness with the characters, it if it worked there, it, it, it worked again, you know? And those are the cool discoveries that start happening. And, and those types of things happen more and more as we went through the process. Interestingly, we also very consciously uh, took sounds, not just musical ideas, but I would, I would take sounds and try, put them in different places. So, for example... Um, scene the sequence where chiron's going back into the school to fight back um there was this moment especially in the beginning where he's looking at a he's looking in a mirror uh over the sink and we actually took the sound of little pouring water in the bathtub from chapter one brought it in to that moment with him over this sink and chopped and screwed that sound so it's stretched and bent and it just sounds like air rushing and there were other sounds there, too, in that sequence where, actually, I think Barry at one point said something. I think like 60% of the sounds <laughs> in that sequence are sounds from the movie that I took and turned into uh, like a percussion suite almost, you know, um, where the sound of the hi-hat, the percussion hi-hat, is actually the sound of Kevin and, and Sharon high-fiving from earlier. Um, almost like a in his mind, like a mute, like a sonic memory of their... Of the last time they had been, you know, in a in a happy moment, mm-hmm. um, and and I think for you know again none of this was done in a way of doing it for people to consciously notice those things, but I think for us it felt symbolic that there were these correspondences. It's interesting that you, you know? say that because yeah. that's
0: the one cue yeah. to me that stood out as being the most constructed in a more classical film score kind it's of a really way
1: interesting yeah that's really interesting because that was one that we really looked at and i think one of the we looked at v- formally in a sense too because there were very clear Beat, sync hits. moments yeah. yeah exactly where we wanted things to line up and i think that um it was important a lot of the pieces in the movie aren't you know uh gridded out in any way but when you have to line certain things up like that there really was like a sense of beat you Mm -hmm. know there was this these beats and and hi-hats and there was a lot of percussion um and one of the counterpoints i think to that was the sound of like uh i woven sounds of of instruments tuning up
0: Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so you're hearing Mm -hmm. this
1: sort of like you know to me that always feels like there's a sense of chaos with instruments that aren't yet playing music you yeah. know like yeah. music is such a or is so so reflective of order you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so for for me this idea of of an orchestra tuning up or you know or of things or of instruments not doing what they're normally doing i think that's again that sort of felt like symbolically Mm -hmm. reflective of of what was happening there actually Mm -hmm. but it also creates a
0: sense of anticipation absolutely because you expect at some point that that chaos is gonna it's gonna start exactly exactly. something's gonna
1: happen Mm -hmm. you know um and throughout there too there were moments i think i'm just thinking back on the cue there are moments where also i wove in little's theme actually Mm -hmm. so you're hearing all of this sort of ordered chaos, you're hearing sounds, you're hearing this sort of like his altered state, but then there's one moment where he's walking down the hall and you just hear Tim playing the riff from Mm -hmm. Little Steve. Just for one moment. Mm So yeah, those were those were fun moments, I think, to incorporate sound, to incorporate a diff, like many different elements into this sonic palette. Um, and again, I feel that's but that's the type of cue that I don't think I ever could have written if I wasn't in the same room as Barry. Mm-hmm. That's really, you know, like for for me, trying something like, like sending that to Barry over email, I think I don't know. I don't think I ever would have sent that to bear over email, you know, because I think I might have come up with something, but the way in which we were together able to make these decisions uh, was so wonderful, you know, mm-hmm. like I could say, hey, I, I have this idea. Let me take the sound of a of little pouring water into a bathtub and bring it into chat. You know, over email, that would sound crazy, <laughs> but in person, you know, he's like, well, show me, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, we just try it out. Um, yeah. I think
0: it's I think it's just really cool that um, that you were thinking about the the overall sonic palette of the film. You know, um, I think I once mentioned to you that Derek Jarman's film, The Last of England, is yes. an example of you know Simon yeah. Fisher Turner working on the music and the sound. It's like there's a certain sonic coherence yeah. that comes from that, which I think is really cool. And along those lines, there's a lot of other like songs, period music and stuff in moonlight and your score and that those songs work so beautifully together um, I have to assume yeah. that you were sure. probably listening or hearing those those songs as you were working, right?
1: Well, actually, Barry wrote a lot of those into the screenplay, which was, you know, they were so literally woven into the movie. Um, for example, the Barbara Lewis Hello, Stranger song in the diner in the end, that was in the screenplay. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, interestingly, the one sort of classical source cue or that that's non- you know, not written by me, uh, was this piece by Mozart. And that actually was a piece that I had sent Barry in my first playlist of ideas. Um, I, it was just this piece of music that I thought was so incredibly just otherworldly beautiful music. Uh, it's this movement, Laudate Dominum, from a Vesperi uh, by Mozart. And we actually recorded the version of the movie was recorded by us, um, by the players, um, for the score, and we, you know, made it for the movie, um, but, you know, and I, I think so much, you know, again, so much of the sonic palette and the way that things worked is, is a credit to Barry's, uh, openness, but also his love of music, I mean, he really loves music, and I think you can tell, you can tell, uh, that he was so excited about the the musical language that could happen in Moonlight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about the players. Your wife played on that. Yeah. So uh, Caitlin played on it. Caitlin Sullivan, my wife, uh, played on it, and uh, Tim Fain. What did Caitlin perform- play? Uh, so Caitlin's a cellist, mm-hmm. uh, and Caitlin played. Um, there are there's cello featured in in different parts of the film, and uh, Caitlin played in particular. There is a um, a lot of cello in, in the third chapter of the film, uh, which is uh, the version of Little's theme, is called Black's theme there. And um, that is really, it's cello, but it's actually cello that was recorded and then I sort of screwed the sound, you know, if you will, and, and pitched it down. So one of the interesting things is when you're hearing cello in the film, it doesn't always sound like cello. Uh, it actually sounds like sort of an interesting bass-like instrument, kind of like I mean what we did with the violin. You know, where, it was hard to identify yeah. sometimes. It yeah, was, which yeah. was cool, of course. Which it's, was fun, exactly. Yeah. So we, and 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 I think what was interesting was that was those were experiments that we did with the sound where um, I act, I would record uh, pieces for cello and then i would experiment after having recorded them i would experiment with bending the sounds and um barry barry loved the sound of the pitch down cello it um it didn't sound like a bass it didn't sound like a cello it sounded like this very very emotional string instrument that just had a very interesting texture to it and um i have i have the original version and then i also have the you know, the, I was listening the other day to the original and then the the pitch down version, um, and yeah, there's something about the the pitch down version that just feels. I think it's because your ear doesn't usually hear that sonic signature. It's, and you couldn't yeah. have
0: notated that, right? Or, uh,
1: I couldn't have notated the pitch. The piece was notated out. That piece. But I was I mean, fully to notated, get yeah,
0: the, it wasn't playable.
1: Wasn't yeah. That, On the cello,
0: it, it had to be pitched it, down. Exactly
1: because it's not. It it did some of the notes go below the range of the cello mm-hmm. um and even if they were played on basses, they wouldn't sound the same it's just something mm-hmm. again it's something about hip-hop in particular and I, I think that was part of why it worked in some ways that there's something about for example in hip-hop when you when you sample certain songs um there's something about the act of sampling that makes the song sound unique and you know sometimes it's the element of uh um, the loss of the high fidelity, the sound, the sound of losing some of the high end and focusing more on the low end, the sound of the vinyl, the sound of the noise on the track, the, the crackle, which I think just sounds beautiful. Um, but there's also something about pitching things and having them exist in a different sonic register. One of the amazing things that actually about hip hop drums is that, um, you know, when hip hop drums really started because you'd have break beats. And then you play them on a record player at a different speed, and when you slow the drums down a little bit and the pitch goes down, the drums sound deeper and bassier and and cooler, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and so you know, it's this these ideas of of um, of applying the technology and and changing pitch and altering the character are so woven into the nature of hip hop, and I thought one of the Barry and I both thought one of the really interesting things that we explored was what do you do what if you took that same technique but applied it to orchestral music so that was sonically I think that was really what we were going for was this classical let's say music that just has a has much more low end actually I mean there's this rumbling and this sort of ex, it's a deeper texture than really you can get on these instruments it that you know you can't create that just by playing them
0: Mm-hmm. How did you meet your wife? What was the, what was we
1: th- both went to... Uh, so we both went to Juilliard during the pre-college program. So you grew
0: up in New York.
1: I grew up on the Upper West Side. Okay. Uh, and my family moved to Westport, Connecticut uh, when I was 13. Mm-hmm. And I went to high school in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. Actually, I went to a high school called Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And I would commute into New York to attend the Juilliard pre-college. Mm-hmm. And... Um, my wife and I were there for four years together, and we actually never met because pianists are we're sort of loners, you know, and we don't play in the orchestra. So <laughs> everyone else meets each other, and you know, we don't really know that many people. Um, but we both attended the Aspen Music Festival the summer after graduating from high school, and we met there. Wow, so we met, high right, school sweethearts. We met, so of? we did, we dated for about two weeks, uh, and then we broke up actually because we were both going away to college. You know, mm-hmm. we were trying to be very mature, <laughs> and uh, we ended up getting back together about seven years later.
0: That's amazing.
1: So that was the yeah, and so and she went to Eastman Conservatory for undergrad. And she got her master's at Juilliard.
0: And w- did, were you studying music at Harvard? Or?
1: I studied psychology, actually. Um, I took some amazing music classes at Harvard. Um, but I studied, uh, yeah, studied psychology. I was always fascinated with music and the brain. Um, I was able to take a few supervised reading courses with professors um, and study and, and get a chance to read literature on uh, neuromusicology, um, but yeah, my degree is in psychology. Huh? So, and I was in my—I spent most of those years also playing with my band. And,
0: uh, and what was what was your band?
1: Our band was uh, called the Witness Protection Program, mm-hmm. the WPP. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> and we we had a blast. I mean, we toured a lot. You know, a lot of the colleges in the Northeast. Um, we we actually opened for Jurassic Five and Black uh mm-hmm. at one point. Um, we we used to play a lot of shows in New York. We used to play at um, Arlene's Grocery and Seabees uh, and Don Hills and Lion's Den. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of ways, I think being in the band um, was s- so inspirational for me as a musician. I had grown up as a classical musician um, and being in the band, I wrote a lot of the tracks that we would play and I got into a habit of writing music all the time for the band, and in some ways um, I think it was that habit of constantly writing music and thinking about writing music that, uh, you know, we were talking about rhythm earlier, you get into a rhythm, uh, it sort of made writing music feel very natural to me. Uh, When I was younger, I would write pieces, I was always, you know, even when I was young I wrote pieces. but. I think there was always a sense of like formality to the idea of writing a piece of music. And when you're in a band, you don't think that way at all. You're just writing music because you're going to play it (laughs) and it's more natural actually. And, um, it really opened up my whole creative process being in the band. I owe so much to that experience and, um, and to being on stage. I mean, there was something, I love classical music. I mean, it's, it's, really a passion of mine um but there was i know for me growing up there was a point i reached where sometimes performing on stage classical music felt um and i don't feel this way today but there was a period where i felt it wasn't totally satisfying to me you know there was something um like i was holding myself back maybe in a way and um performing with a hip-hop band (laughs) like it was so exhilarating actually. Um, and the live nature just felt so wonderful. Um, and I think it really you know it, it was a, it was a fantastic experience in the way of sort of like again, just opening up my creative process. I,
0: I've noticed that compose, film composers who are also performers um, have this uh, other skill, which is comes in handy in a recording scoring session where things aren't going well mm. <laughs> and suddenly you have to improvise yeah. you have to come up with a solution on the spot sure. that seems to be something that especially composers who have a performance background are able to pull off
1: because that's what I because I think when you're performing that's what you're doing so much it's again it's just part of the It's it feels natural you know uh, where that and that's happened a lot actually uh, I think the scoring stage is an amazing but uh, uh th- there are many last minute things that happen that that you find um interestingly like uh there was a there's a track in the big short called uh, Louis Ranieri, which is and we we I actually didn't answer your question about the uh st- st- different styles of music in the in the film that brings us back there that brings to us it. back to there but um there's a track called Louis Ranieri, which is the second cue in the movie, it's the music that is underneath the story of Lou Ranieri and how he basically invented mortgage-backed securities. And it's telling the story of 1970s, how banking was boring, and then there was this guy Lou Ranieri, and he, and in his, you know, in his world, he was, he was a god. And it go and Ryan Gosling's giving this voiceover, and it sort of tells the story of how banking evolved through the 70s into the 80s and, and where it went from there. And, the track i was trying to channel this feeling of like 1970s sort of soul funk big band and um i i had written it out and you know i demoed it out and adam was was excited about it he thought he, he was like let's do this um so we got to the stage and it was it was totally working but actually i'd only scored it up to a certain point and adam said you know what if what if the Queue keeps going, you know, what if, um, when there, when I think there's a line where he says, you know, and then, you know, and then the banker went from the country club to the strip club, you know, and it was this sort of moment of symbolic change in banking. And right there, you know, I was like, okay, well, yeah, let's have it, let's have the Q keep going. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we say to the, we had an amazing band of musicians and we said, you know, let's, let's modulate it up half a step and let's take the form and and keep it going, but let's, let's add in a rock guitar here, you know? Uh, and then, you know, Adam, it, and it worked. It totally worked. And Adam was like, well, actually, let's keep this cue going the whole way until the title. You know, what if we keep it going all the way through the 1980s part of the montage? And so, you know, I was like, yeah we can do that so all of a sudden it's like okay modulate up another half step and now we get an 80s sax solo you know and then you write this so so right there on the stage i'm like writing out new you know we're changing the parts we're we're updating it and you know the players were amazing and um i mean truly remarkable musicians who again on the fly like we're able to just say oh let's let's change it up and uh, but I think you're totally right that like it's those experiences where you're when you're on stage, stuff goes wrong. Things change. You decide to do a track that you haven't really rehearsed, you know, whatever it is. And so I think that when you're on this re- the scoring stage, when you're recording stuff, having had a lot of these experiences where where you're sort of improvising uh, in the past, it can be helpful. for Yeah, that. I mean, because
0: yeah. no matter how much you prepare and of course you have to prepare as much as possible. Totally something's bound to change Always. just like shooting on just like when you're shooting on set you know
1: exactly exactly
0: yeah and and um also i think it speaks like you guys kept pushing it you you yes. know the, the cue was good but it could be better
1: it could totally and that's and that's a big thing and i uh that feeling of looking for looking at a cue and seeing when it works but then saying to yourself you know is this the best version of this cue is something that I think about all the time. And that's something that I remember in class with you. um, On one of the first days, I brought in uh, a cue for a short film that we were working on. I remember that, you know, the cue worked and you looked at it and you said, you know, this cue works, but you know, I think there's a better, (laughs) I think you could do something better than that. And it was interesting because up until that moment, honestly, I had never really I hadn't thought in that way for some reason. I I remember, you know, it you. I used to feel that, you know, some of scoring was f- just finding something that worked, and I now feel more that there are so many things that can work actually. Um, and the question isn't does something work. It's like is this really what works best? And so th- one of the things that happens on the scoring stage, like you're saying, is you know you you know you've demoed something out you're recording it and you know I'm there with Adam McKay and we're all hearing for the first time what it sounds like with these incredible musicians playing the piece and just that alone changes your whole experience of the cue and that experience immediately inspired Adam to say actually this is working so well let's keep it going so the, you know there is always this feeling of like what is the best version of this and kind of rolling with it like oh yeah actually this cue could keep going we had another cue that followed that cue (laughs) and that cue ended up getting almost entirely thrown out because this Lou Ranieri cue sort of took over because again it was it was better it worked better
0: because I think sure. it's really cool. You're taking Moonlight, and you're going to do a a, a live performance version of this?
1: Yes. So uh, we are performing Moonlight with the film live with an orchestra in Los Angeles next Tuesday, January 10th. Um, and uh, it's going to be at the Million Dollar Theater in downtown L.A. And uh, it's a really interesting experience for me i've never done that before i've never performed a, a a score live with a picture so one of the one of the things that we're doing is we're actually creating a new print of the film which has the full movie but just the the score removed so we are the score and um there have been a lot of interesting uh challenges with that in particular because of the uh, the chopped and screwed approach so we've figured out interesting ways of realizing some of that live uh which through a variety of techniques Mm -hmm. um but i think the nature of the moonlight score is something that's uh that is somewhat different and so uh because of that it's it's been fun to sort of see what the how do you do it live? So, so I'm I'm performing uh, piano and organ, and uh, I'm uh, also overseeing the audio production. Tim Fain is going to be performing violin. Um, caitlin is going to be performing uh cello uh and it's with the wordless music orchestra uh who are really experts at this and they've done many films uh live with score they've done recently they did the tree of life um they did there will be blood um beast of the southern wild um under the skin so they've done a variety of these i know they're doing uh barry linden mm. i think uh later this year so yeah so they're they're awesome and um we've been i've been prepping that right now and i'm also scoring a film battle of the sexes uh later this month too which is um the Billie jean king bobby riggs 1973 tennis match oh, uh, story which is starring emma stone as Billie jean king and uh, Steve Carell as Bobby Riggs. Wow, uh, it's, it's awesome, and it's directed by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Faris. So that's been a really awesome experience. I've been working in LA with them, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been great. And then actually after that, I'm doing uh, I'm scoring Oceans Eight, the next iteration of the Oceans. Fantastic! Congratulations with that's Gary amazing. Ross. So that's so those are my current. Projects that you
0: I'm, have a fun. lot going on. a lot for not even the foreseeable future beyond.
1: <laughs> it's a lot of yeah. It's 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 been it's been incredible actually. I mean I've been um it's such a, it, I feel it's such a blessing to get a chance to write music actually and to really get the opportunity to do it, especially with amazing creatives. It's just so wonderful when you meet people that you're able to 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 do this with so um so yeah i definitely don't take it for granted it's really you know it is like it is the most uh is yeah it's it's crazy getting the chance to do this
0: the the thing that impressed me the most when i first met you was the joy that you seem to get out of doing this and and i think that is why you're doing so well and i mean and, and congratulations and thank you a lot, a lot of stuff right it's been,
1: it's been a yeah, it's been crazy it's been a crazy few years, you know, uh, but but really, I have to say, I mean so much of of everything that that every project I've been on, so much of that is the fact that it's just getting the opportunity to work with some of these incredible people. I mean, like working on moonlight with with Barry Jenkins, uh, working with Plan B with Jeremy Kleiner and Dede Gardner. Um, you know, working with Gary Ross or Adam McKay or Steve McQueen—I mean, it's such an honor to get that opportunity. And when you work with them, you also un- you understand how and why they're able to do this. You know, it's because they're all bringing so much and so much of their their talents to these projects, and they're bringing people together. You know, it's such a collaborative form. Like, there's. There's just huge groups of people who, I mean, films are so amazing in that sense that like there's so many people who come together and are able to to figure these things out and try things out over a period of you know sometimes it's, sometimes it's years to get the project together, but you know it's 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 always remarkable um, how much it takes to to put this stuff together, um, but but so much of it is those people. I mean, it's uh, it's like. You know, it's such a special opportunity, I think, to work with all of them.
0: Well, you deserve it. Congratulations. Thank you, Alex. Well, Nick, thanks a lot. Thank you. Awesome. This is that awesome. Was our, their, that was the first one. Oh, my God. The well, inaugural one.
1: Well, I hope it was okay. It was amazing. <laughs> it was okay.
0: Wow. Wow. Nick is amazing. Thanks, Nick. And thank you guys for listening in on the inaugural episode. I'm glad you could be here. There'll be many more to come. If you have any suggestions or thoughts on guests or topics, please feel free to email me at podcast at 1M1.com. I also want to thank Michael Dean Parsons for the 1M1 podcast theme music. Great work, Michael. Talk to you all soon.